welcome back to Shrinking Stigma. If you haven't tuned into our other podcasts, our premise is to demystify some of the misconceptions surrounding the profession of psychiatry for a general non-medical audience. My name is Dr. Jonathan Dornian, and I'm here with Dr. Lisa Harper, a staff psychiatrist in Calgary. Hi, it's good to be recording again. Lisa's been working on this project with us for a little while here, so I'm, I'm happy to be involved. All the funding for this project has been graciously provided by the Alberta Medical Association, and the other individuals involved are Jalen Arcand and Sheila Acharya, both also doctors whom are psychiatric residents at the University of Calgary. Download links to all of these episodes are available by searching Shrinking Stigma on SoundCloud.com, as well as available via subscription on iTunes and Stitcher. I wanted to start this episode with a common psychiatric clinical situation. I'll be working with a patient, either in the emergency department, admitted to hospital, or as an outpatient, and it'll become apparent that their primary problem is a substance use disorder. Most of the time, they'll have presented for some other complaint. They may have been depressed and suicidal, anxious, paranoid, or psychotic. But over the course of working with them, it will become very apparent that the use of substances is contributing significantly to their symptoms. If they've been admitted to hospital, they'll have been without substances for a period of time and are usually doing much better than they were before admission. Part of our discharge planning will involve coming up with a plan for the individual to abstain from substances, which could involve the use of community support groups, specialized outpatient addictions treatment, or even transfer to a residential treatment facility which means a specialized addictions treatment center where the patient will live for a period of time while recovering. Very often, the patient will decline these supports offered. They may say that they'll follow up with community resources on their own or apply for residential treatment if things get worse. Other times, they'll deny that they have problems with substances in the first place. Friends and family may be involved and ask the question, can't we send them for treatment against their will? Both family and clinician will recognize the risk of relapse and potential to get worse in the community as a result. Similarly, a family trying to help a loved one with a substance use disorder will often struggle getting them into treatment if they're not willing to attend. That's a situation I've seen many times in emergency. It's really difficult for everyone involved, including physicians. Uh, We really struggle with trying to figure out how best to help a patient when the patient themselves is not quite at that place where they want to get help. What are you hoping to get across to our audience? Well, a few things. First, I'd like to define what a substance use disorder is. And secondly, review some data showing that involuntary addictions treatments are neither effective or ethical. And thirdly, I'd like to briefly discuss approaches for patients who are currently unwilling or unable to change their behavior regarding substances. I can address the first point. 
Substance use is very common in Canada and across the world. The difference between use and disorder stems largely from functional impairment secondary to usage of the substance. So this is described in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a cluster of cognitive, behavioral, and physiological symptoms indicating that the individual continues to use substance despite significant substance-related problems. In order to make a diagnosis, we look at a number of different criteria that can be categorized in um, impaired control of how much substance they're using, uh, the social impairment related to their use, risky use of the substance, physiological changes such as tolerance and withdrawal. The number of exact criteria an individual meets can then classify them into mild, moderate, or severe categories. But knowing these specifics is beyond the scope of this talk. As with all psychiatric conditions, there's a complex interplay between biological, psychological, and social factors that can lead to substance use disorder. There is conclusive evidence showing dysregulation of dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter associated with pleasure signaling, in the brain in those people with substance use disorders, as well as changes to their brain structure. Further details on the biochemical and neurophysiological basis of addiction could and have filled textbooks. Socially, substance use is further complicated by the fact that some substances are considered socially acceptable and have been legalized, such as cigarettes, alcohol, and most recently marijuana. Legal status plays almost no role in the potential for developing substance use disorder or risk to society and individual from use. However, economic losses and healthcare costs associated with alcohol and tobacco in Canada can be conservatively estimated in the billions of dollars. So, it's a common and pertinent problem with profound economic consequences. Beyond economics, Every day, I see individuals and families whose lives have been torn apart by substance use and addiction. It's truly impossible to understate the emotional burden experienced by those suffering from substance use disorders, as well as the individuals around them who have been affected. Even compared to other areas of mental health, it remains one of the most stigmatized areas. Patients are often labeled as addicts or junkies, they are often reprimanded for poor self-control and their disease seen as self-inflicted, despite mountains of evidence supporting a biologic basis of addiction and significant social and psychological factors that have led them to a substance use disorder. They are a group of patients coming from all walks of life who are largely not receiving empathetic treatment from physicians and society at large. I can see that you're really passionate about the topic. But what about our original question? Couldn't we just send everyone with a substance use disorder to treatment and just fix the problem? Well, sorry about the rant. I think that the short answer to that question is no. And to examine why, 
I wanted to share a conceptual framework regarding stages of change, as well as some of the evidence behind that answer. So to begin, when assessing someone's readiness to address a problematic behavior, mental health professionals will often try to determine what stage of change they are in. In regards to this topic, a problematic behavior would be specific substance use. However, the same concept the same concept can apply to a bad habit that you might want to get rid of, something like eating unhealthy food or biting your nails. Stage of change is an empirically studied concept that was initially identified in smokers trying to quit and refers to stages that an individual will pass through when trying to address this problematic behavior. They've been classified as pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Pre-contemplation can be described as a period in which an individual is not willing to attempt changing a behavior and doesn't view the behavior as a problem. Contemplation could be when they are thinking about the possibility of attempting a change. Preparation, when they are making concrete plans to imminently address the behavior. And action, when they are in the process of making the change. Maintenance would be when they continue the change. Updated versions of this model also integrate the concept of relapse. Using this approach, it would be difficult for someone to move from a pre-contemplative state directly into action without first contemplating, contemplating the change and planning an approach to change their behaviors. So going back to our original scenario of a patient who has no interest in changing their behaviors, despite their families and clinicians' wishes, what stage of change would they be in? So that would be a classic example of pre-contemplative. At this point in time, they would not have a significant interest in changing their behavior. We can actually describe this state as a decisional balance between the pros of continuing with the problematic behavior versus the cons of continuing it. It is not often that they can't recognize the negative consequences of their behavior, though some don't, but rather that at this point in time, the pros of continuing this behavior outweigh the negatives. In the case of someone who has good insight into the negative effects of their substance use on themselves and others, there can actually still be a number of positives that prevent them from moving to a further stage of change. For example, by continuing to use a substance, they may be able to avoid withdrawal, or they might have fears of losing their social circle if they discontinue their use. This is something that's really problematic when people try and cut back from alcohol. Other positives could be avoiding an emotional state associated with some prior grief or trauma that could be masked with substance use. These reasons tend to be diverse and unique to each individual. I think it's important to recognize that though you may not agree with an individual's pros for continued usage, you do need to be able to identify them to help them move forward to that next stage of change. So this person doesn't have any interest in changing right now. What if we just send them to the treatment anyway? Well, similar to the other podcast episodes, I have a little bit of data on that most of which actually came from the forensic system where people had been mandated to attend treatment as part of sentencing or on condition of the release. 
Quite a bit of this data actually comes from Southeast Asia, where compulsory drug detention centers have been implemented by many national governments with military-enforced programs. In such an environment, there's certainly a chance that researchers would be wary of publishing data critical of these programs. Additionally, the data is a little murky, as to effectively study this population, you need to only include individuals who were completely pre-contemplative, and a reasonable proportion of people who have been court-ordered to go to treatment are actually past that stage. Studies will often compare the treatment outcomes of individuals who have been referred by the criminal justice system versus those who were referred by voluntary means, when really it's quite possible that clients from the forensic system are past that pre-contemplative stage, and also that voluntarily referred clients are pre-contemplative and presenting due to pressures from other sources, such as family and friends. It's certainly been identified as an area where further research is needed. In spite of these limitations, there was a large meta-analysis published that reviewed treatment outcomes of compulsory programs in 2016 with several conclusions. Compulsory treatment did not create positive impact on drug use or criminal behavior compared to voluntary approaches, and some studies actually suggested increased criminal recidivism upon completion of the program. They also expressed serious concerns regarding the potential for human rights violations within a compulsory treatment setting. These conclusions are mirrored by a statement from the United Nations Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights calling for the closure of compulsory detention and rehabilitation centers and implementation of voluntary, evidence-informed, and rights-based health and social services in the community. Furthermore, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime and World Health Organization released a joint publication on principles of drug treatment that requires certain ethical standards such as the right to freedom from arbitrary detention, and also things like the right to freedom of movement and prohibition of inhumane and degrading treatment or punishment. Compulsory treatment and centers with concerns of human rights violations seem to be a direct contradiction of that. So you're saying that overall it's not ethically acceptable for someone to attend treatment against their will, nor is it effective. So what can we do? We need to meet the individual at their current stage of change and offer appropriate interventions for that moment in time. An example of this would be psychoeducation surrounding their use. We could provide more information on the substance the individual is using and potential harms, as well as assess their level of knowledge on the impact their use is having on their lives and individuals around them. Because the patient is pre-contemplative, we would not be urging them to stop using the substance or come up with a plan to do so, but rather educate the patient and explore ways that the substance use is affecting their lives. A certain therapeutic approach called motivational interviewing can be used in which the clinician works with the client to encourage exploration of the pros and cons of their substance use, to generate ambivalence on the part of the client or patient to encourage them to independently make the decision to move towards the next stage of change. For individuals that will continue to use, a harm reduction approach can also be taken.
Now that's something that's been in the news lately. Can you tell us what harm reduction actually means? Well, that's a massive and controversial topic that could easily be the topic of a whole podcast. In brief, a harm reduction approach takes a non-judgmental position of minimizing negative consequences associated with drug use in individuals who aren't ready for an abstinence-based approach. This is done instead of condemning them. This includes interventions such as safe injection sites with the premise that users will have a safer place to use than the streets and access to life-saving interventions should they overdose, as well as provision of things that could save their lives like take-home naloxone kits. Naloxone is a medication that can be life-saving in an opioid overdose. Other interventions are things like giving out clean needles to reduce rates of infection, or drug paraphernalia, again, to reduce rates of infection. I'm not going to go into the exact data supporting it at this time, but research has demonstrated significant mortality and economic benefits. It would be great to uh, know more about this. Maybe something that we could have a more thorough discussion of in the future. Regarding what we've talked about today, what would you like people to remember? Well, in conclusion, I'd like people to remember that we classify substance use as a disorder when an individual fits a cluster of cognitive, behavioral, and physiologic symptoms and continues using this substance despite significant substance-related problems. We can't send somebody to an addiction treatment against their will because it's generally both ineffective and unethical to do so. Success in addiction treatment is more strongly predicted by an individual's stage of change, which in those who do not want to make a change in their use is described as pre-contemplative. Well, an individual is pre-contemplative, interventions that we can make are directed at shifting their stage of change or minimizing their risk of use via a harm reduction approach. Lastly, Substance use is incredibly common and does not discriminate between socioeconomic backgrounds. Users tend to be stigmatized and marginalized. Healthcare providers and society at large needs to maintain their empathy towards these individuals to address the challenges associated with substance use. So please remember to subscribe to us by searching Shrinking Stigma on your favorite podcasting platform and All references for articles discussed in this episode are available on our SoundCloud page, which can be found at the URL www.soundcloud.com and searching Shrinking Stigma. Thank you for listening.